You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Carbon gets a bad rap, and probably for good reason too. It's a greenhouse gas that we're releasing rapidly into the atmosphere, especially because of the burning of fossil fuels that have been sitting untouched beneath the earth for millions of years. But in this episode, we'll be exploring this important resource and discussing the vital roles that it plays in our soils. We've got Dr Sam Grover back on the show, who's the president of the Victorian branch of Soil Science Australia and a lecturer from RMIT that you may remember from our most popular episode titled Intro to Soil. Welcome back, Sam. I guess this episode is going to be a bit more specific than our last episode, which was a very broad introduction to soil science. Yeah, and thank you so much, Dan, for letting me speak about soil carbon on your show, which is kind of my pet topic, right? <laughs> yeah, this is going to be great, and I hope our listeners enjoy this one as much as they did the last one. So I guess let's just start off, Sam, with what is carbon? What is carbon? That is such a great question, and it's not one that I have even considered answering until recently because I took chemistry in high school and I took chemistry at university, and so I just, you know, have a solid kind of unspoken understanding that that carbon is this atom that has what 12 electrons 12 protons 12 neutrons it's part of the periodic table that we learn about in science but it's also one of the fundamental building blocks of me of you of your lunch of your house of the atmosphere so carbon's got a lot of i'd say carbon's probably got a lot of bad press lately because there's lots of carbon in fossil fuels and we've been putting too much of that in the atmosphere. But carbon's actually everywhere and it's not good or bad. It's, it's a part of stuff. And we're going to be specifically talking about soil carbon today and something as a horticulturist that I understand is it's quite different in terms of how it plays a role in soil as opposed to other minerals sort of like NPK and stuff like that. Yeah, so when you think of soil, you probably might be thinking sand, silt and clay, the different physical mineral materials that make it up. And for most soils, that's the majority of the volume of the soil. But a really important part in terms of what plants care about, and, you know, we want, want to be thinking about where plants grow in this context, is the living part. And so carbon is really part of the living and dead organic material kind of part of, of soil. So there is carbon in nearly all soils, apart from maybe very, very young soils. And it's our friends' plants that actually put the carbon into soil. So how do plants come up with carbon then? Oh, I love it. How do plants <laughs> come up with carbon? Plants have this incredible ability to suck carbon in a gaseous form out of the atmosphere and turn it into a physical physical thing. So plants actually have little, they breathe through these little holes in their leaves, which you would know about, stomata. You can, in some plants, you can actually see them. 
And so gas goes in there and some of that gas is carbon dioxide, a carbon atom attached to two oxygen atoms. And inside their bodies, plants do this magic photosynthesis thing. I'm not a soil scientist. I, I am a soil scientist, so I'm not a plant <laughs> physiologist. So I get into the finer details of the magic that plants do. But they use energy from the sun and that carbon dioxide gas from the air to make solid carbon in their, in their bodies. So, you know, if you're growing lettuce, then you might eat that. But the part that I'm particularly interested in is their roots. So it's their, their roots are part of their body, which is in the soil, but they also, their roots constantly like exude slime, root exudates, and they actually pump carbon into the soil in this mucousy way. Right. So they're pumping carbon in and storing it in their bodies. It's awesome. We can eat them and they improve your soil. We can't eat them all, of course. <laughs> yeah, just some of them. But I guess, you know, when we're eating carbohydrates, that's a partly carbon that's sort of in there that we're eating. Absolutely. Carbohydrates. When you have carbohydrates in your breakfast cereal, then you're definitely eating carbon attached to other other atoms, but also proteins, fats. Mm. I don't know, like all the different components of our food have carbon attached to other atoms in, in, in different combinations. Right. So that's very fascinating when you think that that carbon comes in the gaseous form in originally before it sort of goes through the plant. Yeah. Yep. So let's go back into soil carbon again. You were talking about root exudates and that's sort of one force that puts carbon into the soil. Are there any other biological forces that can move carbon into the soil? Well, I guess I particularly am thinking about those underground processes where roots die and roots give out right. root exudates, but also dead plant material on the soil surface does get incorporated into the soil. So when you add, if you like actually add mulch to the surface of the soil, or also just if the leaves of the plants in your garden fall off onto the soil surface, then that carbon, those, those dead bits of plants, will be broken down and move into the soil, broken down by, mm. by microbes and, and other soil fauna that you can actually see, by slaters and worms and mm. things. Totally. And my parents have sort of, in the last five years or so, they bought a farm and they've got cattle on that farm. And that's sort of interesting to see all the different ages of cow poo. You know, these cows eat the grass, it goes through their intestines, broken down, then they sort of excrete that. And then you'll sort of see little holes in it where dung beetles and other things are sort of drawing that carbon, then obviously going down into the soil. And then it's interesting to watch those cow pies sort of disappear over time. Yeah, yeah. So animals, us as well, but, you know, the mm. animals that you might think of on the surface of the soil, like cows or kangaroos, and also then those smaller animals like dung beetles or ants, they, by bringing them into the system, that really speeds things up. It's like an accelerator compared to just having the plant and the soil there because those plant-eating animals, the bigger ones, like cows or kangaroos or sheep, might like they, they semi-process the carbon, right? They break it down a little bit. They get the bits that they want out. And then particularly their urine adds, you know, more mm -hmm. concentrated nutrients, but also their, their dung adds that partially decomposed 
plant material to the soil. And then those smaller creatures like dung beetles and, and worms and hundreds, thousands of other soil biota that I don't know the names of <laughs> physically break up that dung and, you know, they move it into like in down, physically down into the soil, which is just hmm. Yeah, super cool when you come across a little tunnel and you can actually see where ants have been storing grass seeds or where a dung beetle's actually, you know, pulled some poo down into the soil and laid its eggs in there. Totally, yeah. So I guess when we're talking about the different layers of the soil, we sort of mentioned that in the last episode, episode two that we were talking together. Which layer of soil are we looking at when we're talking about soil carbon? Look, you can find carbon down quite deep. But primarily, it's the surface soil where, because that's where that's where carbon is added, either on the surface or through shallow roots. Some roots do go down deep. Some species have, you know, roots that go down meters, and you will find carbon at depth. But the majority of the carbon, the majority of the action, is, you know, in the top. I don't want to give a number because I'll get in trouble. But let's just say thirty <laughs> centimeters. Okay. Right. So that's grass roots, you know, that, that's, it's quite deep when you're thinking about how deep roots go, really, like a lot, a lot of roots, unless you're talking about tree roots or something like that. And, I mean, I've just been to TAFE, so I'm not a PhD in soil science, but my understanding is that the darker soil tends to have carbon in it. Not always a hard and fast rule, but that tends to be the case. Would that be right? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good rule of thumb. And, in fact, you know, there's lots of people with PhDs working on this question of how can we make a in the field quick and easy, you know, farmer friendly or, or, or gardener friendly measurement of soil carbon and colour is what they're kind of leaning towards, Do, you know, doing some calibrations and some spectroscopic work, but linking it back to colour because, you know, it's not like a hard and fast rule. Every single dark soil has lots of carbon, but that organic matter as microbes break it down it tends to get darker in color just like your compost heap from you know the surface you can see what's there and then it gradually becomes more kind of brown to dark brown down the bottom organic Mm. material becomes darker in color as it goes from plant material to soil carbon if you've got a dark dark soil and you can it's actually quite a cool indicator in most soils you'll be able to if you dig carefully from the surface down you'll be able to see at least that top one or two centimetres, it's darker than, mm. than further down. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're looking at buying a farm, you probably wouldn't buy one that has white-looking soil on top. Look, it depends what you're buying it for and what part of the landscape mm. you're in. But, right. yeah, definitely, if you're going to invest not just money in buying the farm but also, like, your time and energy and your life moving there, you're going to want to get some soil tests and have a think about it what it is you're signing up for. Totally. There are soil labs out there that can do soil tests. And I mean, that's that's a good way of doing it. That's probably the most accurate way. And then there is a fun sort of initiative out there in terms of testing soil biology, which you would think would relate to soil carbon. It's called Soil Your Undies. So you go out there down to your shop, you buy a cheap pair of cotton undies, and you sort of bury them into the first 30 centimetres. And, you know, if you pull it out in a couple of weeks and it's all been eaten through, well, you probably have good soil carbon and good soil biology in there. 
I love this one, Dan. I'm so glad you brought it up. I have definitely heard of all your undies. I think it came out of the US. Is that right? Oh, okay. I don't know. I've seen Aussies doing it, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't know it came out of the US. Cool. So that is that is directly a measurement of carbon decomposition because your undies, if you happen to buy cotton undies, are made out of carbon, right? Mm. Cotton plants have taken just they've done that thing we just talked about. They've taken carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere stored it in their bodies, we've harvested it, woven it into carbon. And and the white cotton undies don't have a lot of other ingredients in them, but also you can see the change really easily, more easily in white. So I haven't actually done this test myself, but I think it's a great, it's a great one because the microbes in soil will break down the carbon in the cotton underwear just in a, in a similar manner, just as they will break down carbon, you know, the, the plant material, the fresh plant material that you're adding to the soil. So it gives you an indication of having a healthy, active soil biota, you know, community of, of creatures in the soil. Another one that I'm a little bit more familiar with uses tea bags. So if, you know, depends oh. on your audience, whether undies is an appropriate <laughs> point of reference, but with a different crowd, you might like to try the tea bag index, right. which is where you take rubos tea and green tea and you bury them in the soil. Right. And just like cotton undies, tea in the tea bags is like tasty food for the soil <laughs> microbes. And so they'll de- they'll munch on that. They'll decompose the tea in the tea bags and then you pull them out and you actually weigh them. So mm-hmm. my understanding is that the the undies one is a qualitative test, so it gives you a, you know, an indication here or there, but it's not a exact measure. Whereas the tea bag protocol is this international protocol that some tea drinking loving Europeans came up with to be able to compare across the whole world. So they've done lots of calibrations and maths and blah, blah, blah. And you can just weigh, weigh the tea bags in your, on your farm or in your garden and send the data to them and they'll uh, help to compare how active the biota in your garden is or your farm compared to other ecosystems in the world. Yeah, that's interesting. So mm. I guess the microbes must move that tea out from that tea bag, and that leaves a space in the tea bag, which which is how you measure it. Is that right? They yeah, that they they eat it. They incorporate it into their own bodies, just mm. like mm. well, we don't do that with tea because we don't actually eat the tea, <laughs> but just like we would with a sandwich. Oh, we do that with undies though. <laughs> right? Yeah, you've got a strange diet. <laughs> We've really covered a lot of ground already. So I guess when we're talking about plant health, this is a horticultural podcast. So, you know, what role does soil carbon play in terms of plant health, Sam? I'm so glad you asked that, Dan, because that's exactly what I was thinking about. I actually went out into my garden to prepare for this this little chat and I had a bit of a jump on the trampoline and I had a look around (laughs) and I thought, the average gardener, what do they care about soil carbon? Like, you know, mm. it's not mm. for, first and foremost on everyone's mind. They want their plants to grow. And mm. what's soil carbon gonna got to offer there? Yeah. Which is immediately obvious to me, but not necessarily immediately obvious to everyone. And what soil carbon has to offer in terms of making your plants grow better is water and nutrients. Soil carbon can't give you sunshine. 
and your plants really <laughs> need sunshine, as you would be well aware of. You put them in a shady, shady spot, and uh, if they're if they're sun loving plant, they're not going to thrive. But water and then the nutrients you mentioned NPK earlier, those those mineral nutrients that gardeners, many gardeners, are familiar with and add as fertilizer. Soil carbon really has a lot to offer in both the water and the nutrient space. How? Like what what does that, Mm. how does that play out? If you add carbon, which I would, yeah, well, we'll get on to next exactly how you do that, but you can (laughs) increase the water holding capacity of your soil so that the water that you do add to the soil sticks around longer for plants to be able to access it, not just, you know, on the day or a couple of hours after you've watered, but the next day and the day after when you forgot to water mm. or was it when it hasn't rained in a, you know, in a more agricultural, non-irrigated setting, make the water stick around for longer, but in a form or in a, at an energy level, the plants can access it. And soil carbons is also the ultimate slow release fertilizer. So the nutrients, the air, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and all of the micronutrients that plants need, it's there bound up in that partially decomposing organic matter of soil carbon. And the work is done by the soil microbes and they gradually break it down and release the nutrients so that plants can access them. Yeah. What about if we're talking about a heavy clay soil? You know, we're not necessarily looking for more. We may or may not be looking for water retention in our soils. What what about if you have a, a soil that is already too water retentive? Mm. Now here, I think we're getting into the kind of water logging space, right? The, the clay soils holding mm. too much water, but it's not water that plants can necessarily access. So by adding organic matter into clay soils, you can actually improve structure. I reckon you're probably familiar with adding um, gypsum to improve the structure of clay soils. So that's a, that's a good one. And you can like make gypsum more effective by adding it in combination with organic matter to improve soil structure because clay has lots of small pores. So it's holding lots of water, but they're not necessarily, the pores are so small that it's hard for the roots of plants to suck that water to actually suck it out of the tiny pores of the clay and into their own bodies. Um, So by adding gypsum and organic matter, you can improve the structure of the soil so that you get, what happens? You get more aggregation, so there's more bigger pores. Some water can drain away and then some Mm. water can be still held but in slightly bigger, like uh, think of it as your wine is in a test tube as opposed to your wine is in a wine glass. If your wine's in a test tube, mm-hmm. it's hard to get it out because it's so thin. But if your wine's <laughs> in a wine glass, it's easier to drink. Yeah. I think a lot of us can relate with that, Dr. Sam. <laughs> <laughs> really? Because you drink wine out um, of test tubes? No, no, no. <laughs> no, just, no I would never because <laughs> I want it out of the wine glass. <laughs> Good. OHS. <laughs> yeah, OHS, safety first. So I guess, as I said, I'm at a diploma level and I guess in my TAFE, something that sort of helped me understand soil carbon is that it's like a sponge, you know, when you dip a sponge into water, yeah, it holds water, but it also doesn't hold it as much as, you know, a lump of clay. How are you going to squeeze that water out of a lump of clay? You can't. You can squeeze it out of a sponge. 
Thank you, Dan. That's a much better analogy than the wine glass. Let's use that one. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I guess, soil carbon is beneficial to all soils. Oh, well, that's hard to say, isn't it? Soil carbon it tends to be very beneficial to all soils and almost all plants. Yep. I have been asked, can you add too much organic matter to soil? And actually, I was asked that just on the weekend. And I had a really good think about it. And what I came up with was that it's not a static thing. So when you add carbon to soil, it's not there forever. It's gradually being, you know, broken down by those dung beetles and cotton undie-eating microbes. So it's only temporary. If you add too much, it won't be there for long. So don't, don't worry about it. Just add some, add some more compost. Mm. Right. We had a guest on recently, Gavin Davis from Soil Solver. And he's had some controversial sort of opinions when it comes to highly sandy soils in Perth. And this, I don't know what to make of this, but he's sort of saying that organic matter in sandy soils can make them hydrophobic. Yep. So that is, I've done a little bit of work in WA and there can be, there's definitely situations where adding organic matter can add waxes that can add a hydrophobicity to already hydrophobic sandy soils. I'm not an expert in this space. Mm. So, yeah, so people who have those very sandy soils and are concerned about that should consult more local experts, maybe maybe Gavin or, or others mm. in Western Australia. But there I think you need to be mm. careful about what form you're adding your organic matter in to add more of, like you said before, about, yeah, you want to add more carbohydrates. You don't want to add so many lipids and waxes. And so there you want to think about what what plant were you starting with? Some plants have right. got a lot of those waxes in their bodies to begin with and others don't. And you could also, this is a WA uh, Gardening Australia tip, you know, if you're doing a <laughs> an initial intervention, a one-off intervention, add a wetting agent as well add a wetting agent at the same time as the organic matter to really help move water through the soil and yeah, help get that organic matter to be reacting with your, your soil mineral particles and a bit of an injection of biota at the same time. Good advice, yeah, straight from Gardening Australia. There we go. I've learned <laughs> a lot from Gardening Australia. So have I. <laughs> They're great. So we're going to have a nifty little diagram in the show notes about this, but can you please describe what's meant by the carbon cycle, Dr. Sam? Yeah. So I guess uh, the parts of the carbon cycle that I particularly think most about are the parts that we were talking about right at the beginning where there's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, plants are able to take that gaseous carbon in through their stomata and um, build it into physical their bodies, physical plant material, and then we eat it, animals eat it, and some of it just drops to the ground and through that that part of the cycle, eating and excreting and then the soil biota starting to break down the carbon, it moves into soil. Then, of course, some of it moves back into the atmosphere as well. So, so soil carbon doesn't just build up indefinitely mm. in, in any system. Microbes release carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere. So it's a constant circle. And then we've got that historic plant material and historic dead animal material, which has been buried 
beneath layers of rocks long, long time ago, which has formed fossil fuels. So that's like a old part of what's currently happening. And we've dug up that old plant material, well, we, we have, and we are continuing to dig that up and burn it. And so we're releasing that extra carbon dioxide from ages ago that plants, you know, stored in their bodies a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And if we were doing that really slowly, you know, on the same mm-hmm. kind of time frame that it was, you know, that it was formed, then the rest of the earth, the rest of the biosphere and the ocean would be able to cope with that. But because we're doing it really fast, then we've knocked things out of balance, which is why carbon's, you know, got a bad name rather than being appreciated. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess so there is another part to the carbon cycle that we won't be talking about. That is in the diagram, but it it does have to do with the ocean. And I guess this is a soil carbon episode, so we won't necessarily. And yeah, I want to acknowledge the very important and enormous role of the ocean that I know very little about. Um, but yeah, the ocean does play a big role in taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and mm. yeah, storing it. Thank you to the ocean and uh, marine scientists. What does carbon stability mean? Carbon stability. That is an excellent question because I've just said that carbon is constantly moving through this cycle, right? And you can't put too much carbon in the soil because it will be gradually broken down and moved back through the atmosphere. But Not all carbon is the same. You mentioned carbohydrates before, and I went on to say, you know, and and proteins and fats and lipids. So carbon comes in different forms, and some of it is more stable, which just means that it's harder for microbes, but also by physical pro. It's it's harder to be broken down. None of it is like permanent, forever, unchangeable. But depending on what form it is, it might be stable only for a couple of days or stable for a couple of months or stable for a couple of hundred years. So like charcoal is in soil in the kind of timeframes that we think of in agricultural context. Charcoal's very stable, stable for hundreds to thousands of years. Leaves, very unstable. You know, when I was living up in Darwin, Mm. leaves would disappear in my back garden in a couple of days. Now, down in the more temperate parts of Australia, it might be a couple of years before a whole leaf breaks down if you don't do anything to it. So I guess it is what it sounds on the tin there. Still, soil stability is how stable that soil is and how resilient it is against moving into the next phase. Yeah. And from a gardening perspective, you don't necessarily you, – you want carbon in a range of stabilities, right? Because you, you don't want carbon to be completely stable in your soil because you want it to release the nutrients for plants. You want it to break down Mm. and be unstable, release the nutrients Mm. for plants. You want some of the more stable forms of carbon in your soil to increase the water holding capacity. But being um, labile, you know, the opposite term that we use for if it's not stable, it's labile, Mm. that's good because that releases the nutrients that the growing plants need. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know that term, labile. So. Always learning new stuff on this show. Does it make sense? It does, yeah. It makes a lot of sense that, you know, I want to be able to – when I'm eating food, I don't want to eat rocks. Yes, there are minerals in rocks, but they're not accessible to me. Exactly. (laughs) I want to be eating food that's going to be able to break down. (laughs) Yep. And that's a really good analogy, actually. You mentioned charcoal there, and in the previous episode, we were talking about biochar, which is a method of producing charcoal. And you mentioned that not all biochar is the same. Can you speak on biochar just a little bit more this time, Sam? Sure. So 
biochar, it's like biological material which has been charred. So I guess as you as you mentioned there, it can be quite variable. And I want to be absolutely clear that I am not a biochar expert. I haven't worked directly mm. on biochar research, but it has had a lot of interest and there's been a lot of research in this space in Australia um, and internationally in the soil carbon kind of space. So I've heard a lot about it over the years. And what I have heard from my learned colleagues is that biochar can be useful. It can be a useful addition to soils, but it really depends on what material you start with that you burn, right? So you can char all different kinds of materials and what kind of biochar you're going to get depends on what material you start with and what conditions Mm. you char it under. So what Mm. what temperature is the main one Mm -hmm. that you use to turn it into biochar. And then, of course, the impact that it's going to have on your, on a paddock in your farm could be different to the impact that it's going to have in my garden because our soils are quite different to begin with. So that's a lot of ifs and perhaps not super useful, (laughs) but like the take-home application would be that if you're thinking that you might have some excess organic material that you want to try charring and adding into your soil for some more stable soil carbon, add it with compost, add it with mulch, add it with other organic matter Mm. because biochar is going to potentially add both some of that more stable carbon and add some structural benefits to your soil. But you probably want to add some of that more labile carbon that's going to turn over quickly and release nutrients to your plants at the same time. And I'm a horticulturist, so I'm neither a chemist nor a soil scientist. But I guess what my understanding is when we're talking about the temperatures and the amount of oxygen that we allow into this soil carbon, what we're talking about is carbon dioxide emissions. So, you know, if we're losing all this carbon through carbon dioxide emissions, it's not the same product as if you've got a low oxygen, low heat environment where a lot of that carbon is being stored in the biochar. Yeah, that sounds... Right, to me as well, Dan. As I said, I'm not a biochar expert, but yeah, if you use lower temperatures and I'm I'm actually, I think you know more than I do about the oxygen environment in which you're charring the material. I don't think yeah, I do. I think I've just spoken out of turn. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get someone on who is an expert on biochar one day and I'll excellent. have to ask them Yes, that. please do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I will listen and I will learn. So I guess a lot of farmers in the past, especially, they're sort of changing the way they're thinking now on certain farms. And I don't know what's right and what's wrong, but I guess they used to burn the stubble on the top of their land rather than leaving the stubble, which a lot of no-dig farmers and sort of, you know, forward-thinking, in my opinion, that seems forward-thinking to not burn the stubble. But can you speak on soil carbon, you know, in relation to stubble, leaving stubble on the soil? Absolutely. Yep. And Dan, I think you're right. There's been a historical trend away from removing stubble by burning or, you know, physically removing it, um, collecting it up off the pasture or sending your stock in to eat all the stubble, a couple of different options, towards stubble retention, to trying to keep as much plant material, cover of any kind on the surface of the soil. And that's not, that actually hasn't been primarily driven by wanting to put more carbon into the soil. That's a great byproduct of it. But stubble retention has been primarily motivated by limit by trying to 
limit erosion. Mm. So when we harvest a plant and then remove all the stubble, we're exposing our best soil, our topsoil, our high organic matter soil to wind and water erosion. And we're across the nations that have practiced this kind of farming a lot. We've lost so, like unimaginably large amounts of soil. So stubble retention has mm. been really, it's become mainstream, I think it would be fair to say, mm. in agricultural settings across Australia and the US. If not, if not the dominant but practice, but certainly a mainstream practice, stubble retention and, and sowing mm. your crop into stubble. And sure, it's a change of practice, but farmers are super flexible, super adaptable. And yeah, they've really embraced that whole no-till approach, minimum tillage and no-till. Yeah. Occasionally, mm. there's, there's occasional reasons why you might want to, to burn if you've got I guess big a big disease problem or something that you need to deal with one off, but certainly as a regular annual practice, I think that's a thing of the past. Mm, I think so too. And last time you mentioned that you would be interested to listen to a permaculture episode. Well, that one's up now. That's um, Paul and Linda from awesome. Green Life Sawco came on. And- so that's episode thirty-one, permaculture's twelve principles. Definitely encourage everyone to listen Excellent. to that one. I'm definitely going to listen to 31, the permaculture episode, because that's an area that I'm really interested to learn more about from a, from from like perspective of my actual garden, but also from taking a, Mm -hmm. being, bringing a more um, whole systems approach into, into my soil science research, considering more the the long-term plant and food aspects of the system. It was a very philosophical episode, so I thought that I learnt so much through that episode, honestly. Like, I'd heard of the 12 principles before, but actually going through them one by one, they all just meshed together so beautifully, and it sort of actually changed the way I think, really. So, yeah, that was that's a fantastic episode. Definitely recommend going and listening to that one. So, Sam, you work with peat bog environments. What is the carbon situation in a peat bog? Yeah, so I'm... Oh. Thank you for bringing that up, Dan, because I, I was kind of, should I go there? Should I not go there before when we're talking mm. about too much, you know, can you add too much organic matter to wow. soils? Peat and peat soils or peat and peatlands where they form are a particular kind of soil, which is essentially predominantly organic matter. It's actually formed not from broken down rocks with a little bit of plant material, but actually the parent material is dead dead plants. So it's, you know, more than 90%, typically more than 90% dead plant material. So soil carbon is much higher in these peat soils than in than in mineral soils. And it actually, what I said before about, you know, consider the top 30 centimetres, that doesn't apply in peats. The mm-hmm. organic matter or the amount of carbon in those soils is that is really high the whole the whole depth of the profile. The systems that I'm really super familiar with um, over several decades are in Australia, up in our national parks in Victoria and New South Wales and the ACT under alpine sphagnum peat bogs. And they might be, they might only be 50 centimetres, maybe a metre and a half or two metres deep, but really high soil carbon, that whole depth. And re- more recently, mm-hmm. I've uh, had the privilege of being able to work over in Indonesia where they have tropical peats. And where we work, the s- soils are typically eight or 10 metres deep. And there's 20 metre wow. deep peat soils commonly across the island of Borneo. Yeah, so there's a just an, well, exponentially? Yes, I think it would be fair to say there's exponentially more carbon <laughs> stored in these particular kind of organic soils that form under wetlands. We should really, yeah, we should really 
they're great areas to conserve if you want to store carbon in the soil. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard of, I guess, you know, like something that people say is that removing sphagnum moss for, you know, pot plants and stuff like that is, I guess it's bad for carbon. I don't understand how that works. Can you explain how if I take, you know, I guess, you know, obviously we have to think about the ecology and... Dan, this is such a great conversation to open up. You know where I'm going. Yeah, this is such a great conversation to open up between the horticultural industry and the wetland conservation space because sphagnum moss, you know, I know you can buy it in Bunnings and it's been used for hundreds if not thousands of years as a really super water-holding substrate for growing plants in, in containers. And where it becomes not good for the environment or not good for carbon is where it's being removed quicker than it can grow. Just like a forest, right? You can you can harvest timber sustainably if you only take a small number of trees and you know the number of you know you're planting as many trees as you're harvesting. And sphagnum moss is the same. So in parts of the world where it grows quickly, if you only harvest a small amount, use that for horticultural purposes, no problems. The, the problem comes in and the unfortunate situation is that in many places, sphagnum is being harvested more quickly than it can grow again. So it's being mined essentially. And if it wasn't being mined for horticultural purposes, it would be a great store of carbon. So I'm not suggesting mm. that sphagnum should never be used for horticultural purposes, but in many instances, there's, a, there's an alternative. Maybe not quite such a good alternative, um, but there's other waste mm. products that grow more quickly. When I say waste products, I'm thinking like the husks of coconut, you know, that yeah. cocoa peat. It's not really yeah. peat, but a different fibrous <laughs> material from a plant that grows more quickly. And save that sphagnum mm. moss for where it's really essential, which you would know which plants really need that more than others, yep. better than I do. So I, I almost wonder if we can do it sustainably that, the way I see it is that we could have two benefits. One, we could have um, an industry that is beholden to protecting the ecology within a region, you know, especially if we're talking about somewhere that's tropical where it's growing really quickly. And two, are we not storing more carbon by removing it and encouraging more of that sphagnum moss to grow? Again, I'm not an expert. I'm just really curious about this. Yeah, and that's a great way of looking at it. If we can take that holistic perspective that we're growing something and using it and then, you know, supporting the environment where it's grown to grow more, then yeah, you are. You're sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and, and wood products are similar where we can be sustainably harvesting timber, then we are taking wood out of the atmosphere, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it in wood in our <laughs> desk or our house for yeah. some time. I don't want to send you in the I don't want to send you to the tropics looking for sphagnum though, because that's actually a wood based peat. Um, yeah, peat oh. forms from lots of different plants, and the sphagnum-based peats tend to be in colder climates. So there's a bit of a yeah, it's hard to find okay. somewhere where sphagnum will grow quickly, but there's definitely places where it grows quicker than in other places. There we go. Anyway, that's a topic for another day. Maybe uh, we could, yeah. again we could do a whole other episode just on sphagnum moss because that is a fascinating topic. And we'd probably need a biologist, you know, someone who really knows a lot about moss rather than <laughs> yeah. me who just knows about it as a, you know, as the parent material for the soil, mm. my favourite soil. Thank you, Dr. Sam, for coming on. Thanks so much for the invitation, Dan. It's always great to chat. 
Life on Earth is based around the carbon that plants capture through photosynthesis, and then pass on up the food chain as they break down. Generally, healthy soils have plenty of organic matter in them, which has a range of benefits including making water and nutrients available to plants. If you're new to the Plants Grow Here podcast, thanks for joining us! If you like this sort of content, we have plenty of other episodes in our back catalogue that you'll probably find interesting, including Intro to Soil, Plant Biology Basics, and The Pros and Cons of Monocrops. We'll be doing a Felco giveaway for our Aussie listeners in a few weeks, so definitely stay tuned because you're going to be kicking yourself if you miss out on that one. <laughs>